feel, feel blessed by that. So, all right, let me go ahead and open us in prayer. It's great to see all of you. Father, thank you for this time this morning. And Pastor Kerry had wanted to kind of continue that theme from the conference about family and cultural chaos. And we know there's a terrible view of children in the world where they're murdered by the thousands. And so I don't pray that anyone adopt, would adopt my view of children or view children the way that I do. I pray that everyone here would adopt a biblical view and see children the way you do. And so I pray you would just use them as your vessel to uh, reveal that that view, and that it could be adopted, and if it would happen to conflict with anyone's views prior to coming in here, that they would have hearts that are sensitive and receptive to what you want to say to them and to the seed that you want to plant, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would just work during this time. And again, let this be a time truly, Lord, that you meet with your people, not a time that I'm speaking to them, but really that they're hearing from you, through your word, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Now there's a new crowd of people coming in. They were hiding behind the door while I was praying. I don't, I don't want to say any names because I don't want to embarrass Ken Clements, obviously, who I think is in leadership. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whoa, but he's been here all morning. He was at prayer and everything like that, so his sin is not that grievous. <laughs> I love you too, Ken. I'm, uh, you're a friend. I appreciate you. All right, probably don't have to tell you that children are a very, very sensitive issue in the church for a number of reasons. First, you have some people who have been unable to have children or are barren, and they can feel misunderstood or judged by others. Second, you can have people that have had a lot of children, and guess how they can feel? Misunderstood or judged by others. And then you can have people who only have a few children. And guess how they can feel? Misunderstood or judged by others. So it really seems, no matter where you're at on that spectrum, there is the potential to feel misunderstood or judged by others, which shows you just how sensitive of a topic this is. And as we begin, I want to tell you my two desires for this message. I want to share with you what God's Word says about children, which means whether you have 15 children, two children, no children, wherever you're at, I want you to develop a biblical view of children, or I want you to see children the way they're presented in God's Word. If that's accomplished by the end of this message, then I'll consider this a successful message. Now, obviously, this applies to people who have children, but this also applies to younger people who are getting older who will be considering having children themselves or who are younger and happen to be around children. One of the wonderful blessings associated with being part of a family and a good church like this one is you're going to be around children at a very young age. And this applies to older people who are going to be investing in that next generation because some of the older people, regardless of how many children you have or don't have, if you're older, the Bible says that you are a teacher to the next generation. And so it's very important for the older people here. So you kind of see what I was doing there? I was saying no matter where you're at in life, it's important for you to have a biblical view of children. We're discussing a topic that applies to every single person in every single season of life. And my second desire for this message is to prevent all of you, and I would say to hopefully equip all of you to help prevent others from having one of the most common regrets, and regret is almost too soft of a word, pains people experience, which is to get to a later season in life and say, I wish I would have had more children. 
Few things are more heartbreaking than to be speaking to a person who looks back on their life and when they're sharing with you with sharing with you what they most regret, they say that we wish we would have had more children. So what a blessing. How how fortunate, how how blessed would I feel if I was able to be used by God to prevent any of you from having that regret later in life. And so that's one of my other desires for this message. Let's look at the second command God gave man. Go ahead and open to Genesis 1.28. This is the second command because what was the first command? You guys know the first command that God gave, right? He didn't give it to Adam and Eve, which is actually one of the parts of this that's somewhat significant. The first command was given to Adam alone, kind of as Pastor Kerry was talking about yesterday. It's one of the ways that God established Adam's headship. He gave the command to Adam to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then Adam had to relay that command to Eve. So Eve never heard the command herself from God not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She heard that command from her husband, and then she had to submit to his headship and trust him. But this second command in Genesis 1.28, Adam and Eve both heard. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this brings us to lesson one on your handouts. God commands people to be fruitful and multiply. God commands people to be fruitful and multiply. My desire in this message is not to condemn anyone. I don't have an axe to grind. I, I mean this sincerely. I, my heart is love for you. I want to prevent regret. I want you to be able to be blessed. If you walk out of here and think that I stood up here and my heart was to condemn anyone, then that would really grieve me. My desire is to see you be blessed. And that means sharing with you what God's word says. I have that responsibility. And God's word clearly says, this is the second command for people to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I think sometimes people want to ignore this command, or they want to alter it in some way, or they want to soften it, massage it enough, they can get it to say something that they want it to say. But you can read it a thousand times, and what's odd is it's one of the plainest, simplest, most straightforward commands in Scripture. You almost can't mess it up, and people still mess it up. Be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 2.18, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And just uh, for the ladies who are here, if you've ever shrunk back from this command or taken offense at being called a helper, I want to be clear with you about this. Genesis 2.18 is an acknowledgement of Adam's inadequacy. Do you see that? It's odd that a woman will read Genesis 2.18 and be offended by it, when if anyone should be offended, it's man. We should look and say, I don't need help. Genesis 2.18 is God's observation about man's inadequacy or insufficiency without woman. Basically, here's what happened. God looked down, and do you know what he said, gentlemen? He said, you guys need help. You are not going to make it. I better give you a wife. You remember Scott Brown's talking at the conference about wives coming in and beautifying and all the wonderful things that they add or that, that they do for our homes and our lives and for this world. But what is one of the other reasons that God said it's not good for man to be alone? Because man would not be able to obey the second commandment that he gave to be fruitful and multiply. And what's interesting about this command is God gave it to both Adam and Eve. 
He could have done the same thing with this command that he did with the first command and gave it only to Adam, and then Adam could have related it to Eve. But he gave it to both of them, and then Adam had to take the command. He had to pass it along to Eve with that first one. But this one, she heard too. God said to them. He wanted the man and woman to hear the command from him. And the obvious question is why? Why is this command treated differently than the first one? We're not told specifically, so I confess I'm being a little speculative. But my suspicion is because of Eve's greater involvement in the obedience of this command. No guy is, unless he's um, ignorant or foolish or very proud, going to say that he contributes as much to childbirth as his wife. <laughs> right, brothers? You're with me on that, right? Okay, <laughs> so, uh, you know, considering the, the responsibility and the burden that rests on a woman's shoulders versus a man's shoulders for Genesis 1:28 to be obeyed, I think that's why God wanted Eve to hear this command from her. She's the one who's going to experience the pain of childbirth. She's the one who's going to have to carry that child for that, those nine months. And I'll even say this, we've experienced a few miscarriages, and I don't think I'm affected by them the same way that Katie is. It's not to say that it's not hurtful or hard or sad or tragic for me when we've experienced a miscarriage, but when I look at my wife, I can tell she is feeling this differently than me. It is a different experience for a woman to lose a child than for a man. And so God wants her to hear this command to from him because of the great responsibility she has in it being obeyed. The children that are going to rule over the earth and subdue it are going to grow in her womb. One argument I've heard regarding this command goes something like this. The earth is filled and subdued now, so there's no reason for people to feel like this is a continuing command. And what you notice when people give that argument is they don't mention any scripture. And the reason they don't is because they can't find any that supports their position because there's nothing in Scripture to argue that this is a discontinuing command or a command that ceased at some point. There's nothing in the New Testament to make believers think that they shouldn't have children. We've all heard about overpopulation, so I'll just briefly ask you this. Have any of you driven through Montana? <laughs> have any of you driven through North Dakota or most of Nevada? We have some friends that have traveled to Canada, and they've said you can go like days without seeing, without seeing anyone. So plenty of unsubdued areas. It amazes me that anyone mentions overpopulation considering the real threat is low birth rates. The real threat is the opposite of kind of the fear-mongering or really the satanic influence that pushes the devil's agenda to murder babies. Why, if, if the real danger is low birth rates, why do you think that there would be so many people claiming overpopulation as a real threat, except that the God, lowercase g of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, has an agenda that he's pushing and wants to see babies be murdered? That's what's going on. The real threat is low birth rates. <clears throat> and I don't want you to just think, take my opinion for this, so listen to this. I read an article from the Washington Times, and I chose the Washington Times because it's secular. There's no Christian bias. The article's titled, U.S. Fertility Plummets to Record Low. And I quote, America's total fertility rate fell to just 1.86 births per woman, so less than two births per woman, which puts the U.S. on the same page or same course with many Western European nations and Japan where the birth rate has fallen below what's known as the replacement rate, which is usually around 2.1 births per woman. That's what's needed 
for the population to continue re just replacing itself, not even expanding. 2.1, and we're at 1.86. 2.1 births per woman, which is needed to keep a country's population from falling. With 1.86 births per woman, this puts the U.S. behind countries like the United Kingdom, which is 1.9, Sweden, 1.91, Australia, 1.92, or France, 2.01. Now, the sad part of this is the United States wants to think that we are the leading Christian nation. Now, if we were, you would expect us to be the producing or having the most children growing up to serve the Lord. You would expect us, another way to say it simply is, if we were the leading Christian nation, you would expect us to be the most obedient to God's second command. It's a tragedy that we make this claim about ourselves, but then fall so short in, in, uh, when contrasted even with other secular, non-Christian nations. 14, uh, Proverbs 14, 28, in a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. This is God's way of warning about the consequences of a low birth rate which is what we have embraced as a nation. CNBC, another secular non-Christian organization, posted an article titled, and I quote, we need more babies, seriously, this is a problem. And here's a quote from the article. We just learned that the U.S. birth rate fell for the sixth straight year in 2013 to an all-time low. Pardon me for sounding a bit alarmist, but this is really bad news for our economy, our society, and all of civilization. I don't want to read too much of the article, but then he goes on to list all the reasons that a low birth rate is so detrimental in all of those areas for the society, for the economy, for the civilization. And we should expect that. We should expect there to be that, those consequences because God's commands are always for our benefit. They always bless us when obeyed. So we must expect consequences when those commands are disobeyed. And so if God says, be fruitful and multiply, and we disobey that command, then we're the ones who are going to suffer as a result of that. Now, even though Americans are not having children, do you know who is? Muslims. Muslims. Listen to this. As of 2011, it's predicted the world's Muslim population will grow twice as fast as the rest of the world over the next 20 years. An article on CNN from January 2011 said, the growth will primarily take place because of their relatively high birth rate. Conversion to Islam will play relatively little part in the increase. High birth rates were cited as the reason for Islam's growth, which makes sense. People aren't going to convert to Islam because even secular people can recognize the wickedness associated with that religion. But it's, un, it's, a, it's shocking, it's astounding that they can grow so exponentially simply from the number of children that they're having. According to the World Christian Database in 2007, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world with a growth rate of 1.84%. Christianity is not even second. It is not third. It is not fourth. It is not even fifth. Christianity is sixth, with a growth rate of 1.32% behind religions like Hinduism, making it almost one-third slower than Islam. 
and here's what I'm trying to say. It is obvious to me that Muslims recognize the benefit of obeying Genesis 128, even if Christians do not. And just let the tragedy of that settle on your shoulders. Consider how un unbelievably sad that is that we would see other religions recognizing the benefit of what God's Word says when we don't. Now, sadly, as Muslims' birth rates climb, what impression does it give as Christians' birth rates decline? As Muslim birth rates climb and Christian birth rates decline, what impression does this give? Muslims have a considerably higher view of children than we do. Christians have a considerate place, a considerably lower value on children than Muslims do, or even than any of the other religions, religions that are ahead of us. And if you think about this logically, I don't even want to say logically, that's the wrong word. Let's think about this spiritually. What religion do you think the devil would want having children? What religion do you think the devil would want not having children? It's obvious. The devil would want nothing more than to see Muslims, some, many of them jihadists, Christian-killing people, having as many children as possible, and of course limiting Christians, tempting them, working against their view of children and seeing them as a blessing. Nancy Lee DeMoss said, anything that hinders or discourages women from fulfilling their God-given calling to be image bearers and nurturers of life furthers Satan's schemes and aids his efforts, one of the purposes of marriage is to produce godly offspring. Childbearing is a basic God-given role for women. Children are to be received as a blessing from God. Now, even though I share those statistics with you, here's the truth. <clears throat> I don't want you wanting to have children or having a positive view of children because of the statistics I shared. I don't want you to have a positive view of children because there's a low birth rate and it's bad for our economy. I don't want you to have a positive view of children so that we can pull ahead of the Muslims. I want you to have a positive view of children because that's a biblical view. I want people to have the view of children that the Bible presents. So let's discuss what that is, and it brings us to lesson two. Children are part one, a gift, reward, and blessing. Children are part one, a gift, reward, and blessing. Whenever the Bible discusses children, it always, this is not an exaggeration, always presents them positively. Psalm 127, if you want to go ahead and turn there, please, toward the middle of your Bibles, we won't turn back to Genesis 1. Psalm 127. <clears throat> Psalm 127.3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage. Some translations say an inheritance or a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So this is what God's word says about children. If you want to have a biblical view of children, you embrace what this verse says about them. Read this verse, soak it up, 
and say, this is how God views children. This is how I want to view children. And we must remember what God's word says about children at two specific times. Let me say this one more time. We must remember what God's word says about children at two specific times. First, when the world is tempting us to think that they are a curse or a nuisance or troublesome or burdensome. That's one time we need to remember that. And then the second time we need to remember that is when it seems like children are trying to convince us they're not a blessing. (laughs) That's the truth. One of the main reasons people don't have as many children is they have some children and then they become convinced that children are not the blessing that God's word says they are because of the way that those children are acting. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that having children is hard work. I heard someone say that, that children often cause us the most joy on this side of heaven and the most grief. And I think that there's probably a, a, a lot of truth in that, especially for people who have had children who have gotten older. And may I just, and may I just say this to you? If you've had it, I've, let me back up and get a little momentum into this point. I haven't been, a, I've been a pastor about 12 years. I know that's not that long, but I've been a pastor long enough to be able to share this with you as an encouragement There are many wonderful, godly, God-honoring parents who have a child that rebels. You do not have to take that personally. You do not have to think that you did something wrong. Who was Manasseh's father? Anyone know? Hezekiah. Manasseh, the evilest man in the Old Testament, came from one of the greatest fathers in the Old Testament. Who was Adam and Eve's father? And they sinned. So if you've had a rebellious child, you don't have to deny the free moral agency of your children and think that you are responsible for their hearts. There's only so far we can go. There's only so much we can do. And if you have a rebellious child, you still have to continue to view children the way God's word says, and you have to encourage others to view children the way that God's word says. The next verse, Psalm 127.4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the, in the gate. Before I tell you what this verse is saying, let me be clear about what it's not saying. It's not putting down or condemning or criticizing people with fewer children. One of the ways churches err is they don't present a positive biblical view of children. But the other way that, ch- that churches err on the other side of the spectrum is they condemn people who don't have many children or who have been barren or who have been unable to have children. And it's a really terrible thing when you have a couple or a woman who is struggling to have children and would give her left arm to be able to hold an infant and then someone might stand up at the pulpit and make that person feel condemned for something that they are praying every day to be different in their lives. And so this is not meant to condemn. It's not meant to to criticize. But with that said, this verse is clearly associating children with blessing. So with every child you have, you must feel more blessed by God. Because the verse doesn't say how many children make a full quiver, and there's been plenty of argument throughout the last decades or century about what is and isn't a full quiver, but I'm going to ask you this. When you go to battle regarding arrows, what do you want? As many as possible. I don't know anyone except the most foolish 
soldier that would go to battle and say, no, 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 I, I'm only taking a couple with me. I only want a few. You take as many as you can. And I would ask you this, are we in a battle? Yes, we are. There's a spiritual battle raising, raging around us, and we need as many arrows as we can have. Look at the next psalm, Psalm 128. If your Bibles have a title for this psalm, it probably says something like, Blessings for those who fear the Lord. This psalm describes some of those blessings for people who fear the Lord, and one of the main blessings for people who fear the Lord is what? Or actually, I'll, I'll show you, I'll show you. Psalm 1281, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. It goes on to discuss those blessings and look at verse 3. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. This means your wife will produce children like a vine produces fruit. In the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. So again, let's be biblical in our understanding or in our view. This is saying that one of the ways that God chooses to bless those who fear them, fear him, is by blessing them with children. Verse 4, behold, thus shall the man be blessed, or this is how the man will be blessed, who fears the Lord. So one of the most common blessings for the person who fears the Lord is to be given children. In scripture, and Psalm 128 is not the only place to present this, it's always a sign of God's blessing when he multiplies someone's children. Children and descendants were one of the most common blessings God had for people. Deuteronomy 7, you know, the, the famous um, conditional Mosaic covenant, if you this, then I this. So there are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 7 records the blessings for obedience under the old covenant. And verse 13 says that God will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. So under the Mosaic covenant, that was one of the blessings for obedience to be given children. Now today, I mean, consider, you know, how, how must God feel when he looks down at what he previously promised to people as a blessing for obedience and they treat it like a curse or they murder those blessings? I don't know that there could be many worse things for God to have to see. The blessings for obedience under the old covenant repeated again in Deuteronomy 28. And then in verse 4, it says, blessed shall be the fruit of your body. And the idea is children are one of the primary ways for God to bless his people's obedience. One of the other ways children could be a blessing is by helping in our sanctification. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. Children are part two great causes of maturity. Children are, part two, for lesson two, great causes of maturity. I was talking to a mother one time when she had, she has 12 children, but she says when she had her first child, she was shocked that they let her drive away from the hospital with that child because she saw it as such a great responsibility. And she was thought, do I, shouldn't I have to get some training first or something? Do I need to bring someone into my house that's going to show me what to do with this baby that is depending on me completely. The fact is, there is almost nothing else in life that will teach you responsibility, that will teach you sacrifice, or teach you to be sacrificial, that will produce maturity in you more than having children. If you go to school, you take classes, you get breaks between classes. 
You get summers off. You get weekends, holidays. You finish your schoolwork. You relax. If you have a job, you clock in, you clock out. Nobody works around the clock. Even if you work a lot of overtime, you know, you're at least getting paid for that. When you get married, there's sacrifice involved. Marriage also helps our sanctification. But I would even say that marriage pales in comparison to the maturity produced by having children. Your job, your school, even your spouse does not depend on you around the clock. At least hopefully your spouse doesn't. Your spouse isn't completely dependent on you, I suspect. Some of the wives, they just said, I think my husband might be completely helpless without me, like our baby, but my wife might say that. So, When you have children, you are introducing something into your life that has very little break. It demands a commitment that is unparalleled in the rest of life. There is nothing that is going to purge selfishness from a person like having children, You're completely responsible with caring for another human being that can do almost nothing for himself or herself. You have children, your life, that used to revolve around you. I've had some selfish friends, and they got married later in life. And I would say that, too, is not a good thing to get married later in life. If you can be married earlier before you're allowed to be filled with the sort of selfishness that can indwell you when you've been single for some period of time, get married earlier. But I've seen some of these friends who are very selfish have a child and it just purges them of that selfishness. They can no longer live those lifestyles or think only about themselves as they did before. Basically, they had to grow up. They have to give of themselves. And all this is very, very good. It is part of God's plan for children to help us mature, become more giving, become less selfish. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, normally we quote this verse and we focus on the second part, the responsibility fathers have to spiritually train your children. But the beginning of the verse says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath or don't exasperate them. And what this is really doing is commanding fathers to be patient and gentle. And learning to be patient and gentle is very sanctifying as a father. In a sense, when God gives this command in Ephesians 6, 4, he's telling fathers, myself included, to be someone that you might not be naturally. Be someone that your sinful nature resists being. And it's children that produces that. For wives, 1 Timothy 2, 15, wives will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. We know from the rest of Scripture, this is not as literal as it sounds. It's not to say that women are saved by having children. We know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So then if that's not what it means, what does this verse mean? First, it means that raising children is that primary sphere of ministry in which a woman will work out her salvation or serve the Lord. And so as a woman, if you're wondering after you have a family what God wants me to do, his primary, primary call in your life is to care for your husband, your children, and your home. And you can read Titus 2 to see that same instruction. But right here, Paul tells Timothy that she's going to be saved in childbearing because that's where she is going to work out her salvation. Second, the other thing it means is women are going to be made holier or sanctified through having children. If you're a mother, I think all of the mothers would acknowledge that few things in life help you in your sanctification more than your children. Amen? Few things in life teach you to be sacrificial and unselfish and gentle and long-suffering and patient and forgiving 
like having children. One of the things Katie pointed out to me, and she said, she wanted me to ask the ladies this, are there any other things in your life that cause you to cling to the Lord and trust him more than having children? Is there anything in life that is scarier and causes you to depend on the Lord more than having children? And even the secular world recognizes the great spiritual benefit associated with having children. Listen to this. Earlier, I mentioned that CNBC article, We Need More Babies. Seriously, this is the problem. Interestingly, the article also said that one of the specific problems associated with not having children is people not maturing. You heard me correctly. A secular article said that one of the problems associated with people not having children is the lack of maturity. There, it, the article says, and I quote, there is a societal price that we are paying in this country for having fewer children later in life. Just about every parent I know will tell you that the moment their child, their first child was born was the moment they truly accepted the responsibility of their own adulthood to the fullest. When we start seeing more 25 to 45-year-olds who clearly haven't grown up yet because they've delayed having children, I get concerned. Our growth as a society is stunted when fewer children are around to induce maturity and better behavior. Fewer children means more aimless and purposeless young adults. And that's from CNBC. I mean, that sounds like something you could almost read right out of God's word because the secular world recognizes the benefit associated with having children. There's obviously a group of people who are unable to obey God's command in Genesis 1.28, and I'd like to discuss them. These are people who struggle with barrenness, and this brings us to lesson three. Barrenness part one is a theme in scripture. Barrenness part one is a theme in scripture. Barrenness is such a theme, there's six, possibly seven women who experienced it. Sarah was barren until she... And by the way, just to be clear, barrenness doesn't mean someone hadn't had children. Barrenness means someone couldn't have children. There's a difference, okay? Sarah was barren until she was 90, Genesis 11.30. Sarah was barren, she had no children. Rebecca, Genesis 5.21, it says Rebecca was barren, Genesis 29.31, Rachel was barren. Samson's mother, we're never told her name, but Judges 13.2 says Manoah, Samson's father, his wife was barren and had no children. 1 Samuel 1.5, the Lord closed Hannah's womb. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, Luke 1.7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They're both well advanced in years. The possible seventh person would be David's wife, Michael, but I don't think she was barren. I think that he simply stopped having relationships with her because of how she had disrespected him and treated him after he returned home after delivering the ark into Jerusalem. But even if you, whether Michael's part of that or not, you can't help, part of this list, you can't help but see it's a very common theme for women to be barren. And here's what's really interesting. Please hear me when I say this because of how painful it can be when women are barren. That list that I just read to you, a barren women, is practically a list of the godliest women in Scripture. Do you see the point I'm making? How tragic is it when a woman suffers with barrenness and she thinks it's her fault? She thinks she's done something wrong. She thinks God is upset with her or is punishing her. You only need to look in Scripture and see that it was the godliest women who were often barren. A woman will say, why me? What's wrong with me? Why these other women and not me? And it's an understandable hurt for them 
because what has God put into a woman that is more feminine or more bound to her womanhood than having a child? And so when a woman can't, and she understands God is the author of life, why is he as the author of life not giving her children? It is a very understandable pain that we need to show sensitivity toward those women in the church. As their brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to come alongside those women and be, a, be an encouragement to them, pray for them, not condemn them, not make them feel worse about this trial that they're going through. And my hope is if any women here are struggling to have children, please keep in mind it has nothing to do with your actions. You did not do something wrong. And if you know a woman who's struggling with having children or who is barren, you tell that woman what I just said. You tell them that some of the godliest women in Scripture could not have children or were barren, and it had nothing to do with them. Also, when you think about these women, you notice their barrenness was temporary. And I think that's significant. As much as it is a theme for women to suffer with barrenness, it is equally a theme for God to graciously remove that barrenness and open the womb. Now, I am not guaranteeing that God is going to open the womb based on some amount of prayer. But I am saying that because it is such a common theme in Scripture for a woman to be barren and then for the womb to be open, we must notice that. It is significant. In other words, I don't think it's too much to say that when a woman is barren, God wants us praying that he will open that woman's womb. And when God did open that woman's woman's womb, he typically did so based on the prayer of whom? Her husband. Her husband. It must be husbands laboring in prayer for God to open the womb of their wives. And I will tell you, I would not be more thankful than to pray for a woman who came forward and said, I'm barren, I am unable to have children, will you please pray for me? I can count on one hand the number of times that's happened, though. There should be way more women going to their elders, asking for their elders to pray for God to open their womb and bless them with a child. Unfortunately, it is a trial or a burden that they're keeping just for themselves. They should be sharing with their church body, and their church body should be lifting them up. So here, if I, it would be a great blessing for me if you would happen to catch me sometime after the discipleship hour or after the service and just allow me to pray for you if you have been barren or unable to have a child. Considering some women struggle with barrenness, I want to address the children who, or the women who don't. You must be very thankful for the gift God has given you. If you are, we just take things for granted. And so if you're able to have children, you might not appreciate how wonderful that truly is. But I guarantee this, if you were in the shoes of a barren woman for any length of time, consider how fortunate you would feel to then have your womb open and be able to have the children that you do. So if you have children, you need to be very, very thankful that God has blessed you as he has And you need to see what you can do to be a blessing to those other women who have not been shown that exact same favor or grace. And this brings us to lesson three, part two. Barrenness shouldn't be chosen. Barrenness shouldn't be chosen. 
Now, when I say choosing barrenness, let me be clear about what I am and I'm not saying. I'm talking about taking permanent steps to no longer be able to have children, and that should never be chosen. I am not talking about delaying for some reason or, or some space between children, although I would highly caution you against that. My encouragement would be whatever you're going through that is making you think you should space out your children, please take this as an encouragement to me that God sees that. He knows what you're going through, and he would know if you need children spaced out. If you truly, people love to say they're confident in God's sovereignty. I mean, Christians, they'll close their eyes and say, God is sovereign. I'm confident in that, but they don't live like it. If you are confident in God's sovereignty, then you have to believe that he sees whatever is going on in your life, and he knows what's best, and he knows when is best for you to have children. If you take that out of his hands, then that might be saying something about your confidence in his sovereignty. But to be absolutely clear, I'm not prying into that too much. I'm just saying nobody should take permanent steps to no longer be able to have children. Nobody should choose barrenness. And one reason I say that is you might change your mind later. <laughs> you might regret it deeply. And we know that personally because we had a reversal. We took permanent steps, deeply regretted it, Katie was suffering terribly with, with uh, hyperemesis, a condition that made her very sick. We wanted God to, we thought God wanted us to adopt. We took some steps and had that decision reversed by God's grace. He allowed it to be reversed and has blessed us with the other children we've had after our first three. But I'm just very, very thankful. I had abdicated my role as the leader of my home in allowing this to take place. And God had mercy on me. And, and I will be thankful for that through the rest of this life and the next side of heaven, I believe. Now, the other important reason that we shouldn't choose barrenness is simply that Scripture doesn't support it. I do not see how you can support choosing barrenness from Scripture. How is barrenness always presented in Scripture? We love to say that we are governed by Scripture, that Scripture guides our lives, that we have a biblical worldview or biblical view of the family. If that's true, how is barrenness always presented in Scripture? Very negatively, as one of the worst curses a woman could endure, one of the most painful situations for people to have to experience. But ironically, along with debt, barrenness is the other thing presented in Scripture as a curse that people will embrace, that people will introduce into their lives. It is very sad to me when Christians will deliberately introduce into their lives something that the Bible presents so negatively or so as, as being so terrible for people to have to endure. It's very sad when Christians will deliberately introduce something into their lives the Bible presents as a curse or something that people in Scripture prayed fervently to be alleviated from or to be able to avoid. Look at the people who cried out to God for barrenness to be removed from their lives God blesses them and remove it, removes it, but then you have Christians that reverse that and deliberately introduce it into their lives. Now consider this, since it is such a manifestation of God's grace to have children, since Scripture presents children so positively as a gift, as a reward, as a blessing, since Scripture presents barrenness so negatively as a curse, how can any Christians being honest with Scripture think that God would have them choose barrenness. 
I do not think that you can argue that honestly from Scripture. At least have the integrity to acknowledge you're going against Scripture. Because then at least you're considering it accurately, truthfully. Let me conclude with one more point. Lesson four, apply what God's Word says about children. Lesson four, apply what God's Word says about children. Whenever we come to God's Word, we have two choices. This is a larger discussion than just children or barrenness. This, this, this is a discussion of our view of Scripture anytime we read it and the two choices that we always face. And those choices are this. We can let Scripture shape us, shape our views, shape our decisions and choices, or we can shape Scripture. We can twist it, we can mold it, and force it to agree with our beliefs that we want to hold on to so that we can be convinced that what we think is right. And there are few things more dangerous than doing that with God's Word. So when you come to God's Word, you have to come open-handedly. You have to say to God, I want what you have for me. Speak to me through your Scriptures. Feed me. Transform my heart and my mind. Let me see things the way you see things. And this morning, I'm not asking you to see things the way I see things. When I pray at the end, I will pray that if there's anything that I said that is not from God and does not agree with his word, that it would be disregarded by all of you, and I mean that sincerely. But at this time, as God's word goes forth, if I am being faithful to it, and hear me when I say this, if I am being faithful to God's word, as I teach these principles, you are not hearing from me, you are hearing from God himself. If what I said rightly divides God's word, you did not hear from me this morning. You heard from the Almighty God himself about children. And it is a fearful thing to reject what he says or to twist it to say something else just because that's what you want. The world definitely does not describe children the way that they are discussed in God's word. The world describes children as a burden, a nuisance, an annoyance, and the list goes on. But we should expect this. We must expect this. Because if the Bible is going to speak positively of something, if God has a high view of something, what must we expect from the world? The world will hate it. The world will despise it. And the world will work very hard to twist our understanding why would the world want to destroy children? Because the world is governed by the devil, and each of those children are image bearers of the Lord himself. And the devil wants nothing more than to see them not come into the world, and especially not to the parents of Christians. So it's easy to walk away from a message like this, saying, oh yeah, children are a blessing, just like Pastor Scott said, just like the Word of God said. But the question is, what does it look like practically practically, to apply this to your life and see children as a blessing. First, in your church, you must be happy about having children around. I don't do a huge amount of guest speaking, but I have done enough guest speaking to tell you that it is very unfortunate when I go into churches and they do everything they can to get children away from their parents and to split up families, to get children far removed 
So we don't hear them. So we don't see them. Now, I personally, I love pastoring a church that loves having children around, has a high view of them. It saddens me when Christians and churches say, oh yeah, we think children are a blessing, but let's make sure we get them far away where we can't see them, where we can't hear them, where they're not going to distract from God's word as though the kids don't need to hear God's word. I mean, consider the insanity of it. It's tragic. So, hey, I just want to tell you, be thankful that you attend a church that has a high view of God's word and be thankful that you attend a church that is led by men who have a high regard for God's word and have a high view of children because there are a lot of churches. That's not the case. I met with a gentleman just a few weeks ago, and he said to me that he did not have the same view of children that I do, and he said my previous pastor had decided that he would not have any children so that he could commit his life to the ministry. And I thought, what a very perverse understanding this man must have to think that the best way he can obey God is to disobey God. That's what he said, basically. The best way to serve God is to disobey what he says. It's also unfortunate when I meet women who tell me, and if I can just, ladies, if you've ever heard this before, if you have ever said, I'm expecting, and you heard something other than praise God, or this is so wonderful, or the Lord is blessing you, or God is giving you a gift, if you've heard something other than that, like perhaps a joke about how many kids you're going to have, or do you know what causes that? or perhaps there was an eye roll. May I just apologize to you on behalf of the church? As a pastor, may I just apologize and ask you to be able to forgive because of the people who have not responded biblically? Because the biblical response when a woman is expecting is what? Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful gift and blessing that you are giving this couple and to hug that woman, and to tell her, oh, I am praying for you, I am praying for your family, I am praying for a healthy delivery. I will be the first to say that I know children often make environments louder. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. In other words, without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need an ox for what? a large harvest. The idea is if you don't have an oxen, any oxen in the barn, you're not going to have any messes, but you're also not going to have any harvest. And what we need for that next generation is a spiritual harvest. And it's the same with children. No children, of course. You go into the homes of people who have no children, and there's no mess. Their lives are easier and simpler. You can go into the churches where they've gotten all the kids removed far away, And sure, it's quieter in there, but there's something that they've lost that's so tragic. The sound of children is a wonderful thing. It is a reminder of God's favor. It is a reminder of the gifts and blessings that he has given us. So in my church, children make noise, of course. Everyone looks at me and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, how does, if they're new, at least, and they don't already know our view, they look at me and they think, "Uh uh-oh, how does Pastor Scott feel about about this infant that's interrupting his sermon? And I very quickly always say, we are so thankful for the sound of children. They are one of God's greatest manifestations of grace on our church. And we keep a a list of pregnant mothers that's about 8 to 10. seems like every single time one woman delivers, another woman is added to that list. 
And by God's grace, I hope it remains that way throughout Woodland Christian Church's history to always have eight to ten or perhaps maybe more women pregnant. And so we always want to receive children as positively and as favorably as possible to raise up that next generation of Christ followers, and that means Christian families having children. So in my conclusion here, I hope we can demonstrate, demonstrate through our lives, demonstrate through our treatment of children, demonstrate through our treatment of young mothers, including when you're sensitive to a woman who's barren, and you should be. When a woman is barren and you're compassionate to her, what you're doing is you're showing a high view of children because you're saying, I understand this is such a difficult trial for you because I understand children are such a gift and reward and blessing and you're unable to have any. My heart goes out for you. I will pray for you regularly that God opens your womb. So you're showing a high view of children when you're sensitive and compassionate to barren women. I hope we can demonstrate through the way we respond to pregnancies that we have this high view of children, this biblical view. Now, finally, I just want to invite you again. It's my privilege to pray with any of you regarding any of the three situations that I described. If you're at all on the fence about whether to have more children, give me the privilege of speaking with you, praying for you, because it is a huge decision. And I would consider myself very blessed if I could come alongside you in just a small way and just pray that God directs you, or to pray with you if you're struggling, being able to see children as the blessing that God described in his word. Plenty of struggles associated with parenting. Allow me to pray for you. You're struggling with being able to have children. The womb is closed. You're barren. Please let me pray. Oh, I'll tell you something beautiful. I've got six minutes left. I thought I was going to finish a little early, but it's not looking that way. (laughs) Six minutes, is that what I've left? Five minutes? Okay, okay. I'll make this short on that. So I'm at Christian Heritage uh, Homeschool Conference. You guys are familiar with it, right? Actually, let me back up. I'm at my church, and this gentleman shows up, and he's got this huge smile, and he clearly recognizes me. And I felt terrible because I didn't recognize him. And it's one of those situations you're like, God, what is his name? Where do I know him from? He knows me. Who is he? And he's got this stroller, and his wife is with him. And he's smiling, he walks up, and he realizes I don't remember him. And he says that. He says, hey, Pastor Scott, I I want to come here today. I want to see you. And he says, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, I'm sorry, brother, I don't. I I might, not to make excuses, don't take it as a reflection of you. I'll meet a lot of people, and I'm probably thinking about my sermon. Forgive me. Tell, Tell me about yourself. He goes, I don't live here. I drove here a few hours to be here this morning. I was at Christian Heritage last year. I came to your booth after a a message you delivered about people having children. I asked you to pray for me because my wife was barren, and you prayed for my wife and I. And he said, do you remember that? And I said, I'm sorry, I don't remember that. And he said, I wanted to come here today because I wanted you to see the child that God blessed us with after you prayed for us, after God opened our womb. And he looked down at the stroller, and he introduced me to his son drove all the way just so that I could meet that son. If I could pray for you, all I ask is the opportunity to do so. Father, we thank you so much for the gift the children are, the reward, the blessing, all the wonderful things that your word says about them. We're not trying to pull ahead of Muslims. We're not concerned about our nation's economy. We just want to have the view of children that your word presents, and we want to love them, and we pray that you would bless us with them. And I ask, Lord, that if there's anything I said this morning that disagrees with your word, anything that is at all unbiblical, 
Let these people disregard it. I pray that it will not bear witness to their hearts. But if what I have said this morning is from you and rightly divides your word, I pray that the seeds from it would be planted in the hearts of these people, that they would be equipped both to minister to others and to live out that high view of children. We thank you for this time this morning. Pray that you'll go with us into the worship service. I pray as every time I'm allowed to be here, I thank you for that privilege. And I just want to continue to pray for Cornerstone. I thank you for this church. I think it's rare to see churches that have such a biblical view of children and such a, um, a biblical view of other topics, to hold fast to what your word says and not be given over to the world's feminism or, or the worldliness that is filling other churches. And so keep this church strong. Keep Pastor Kerry strong. Keep, keep um, Elder Chris Green strong. Raise up other elders that can come alongside them. Be with the deacons. I think about um, Ken. I think about Mr. Morgan. I think about... I'm sure some of them escape me at this, at this time, Lord. I think about Dave, and I pray you'll be with these godly men. Help them to lead their families well. Help them to lead this church well. Raise up other men, even, even men that would be born today, that would be, be given to women, and that they would raise them in 20, 30 years from now. They would come up and lead this church and lead other churches of their own. And so continue to bless this church. I pray it can be pleasing to you. Go with us into the worship service. Be with Pastor Scott Brown as he preaches. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many men, you are dismissed.